Welcome, everyone, to Mystery, the podcast about myths and history. I am one of your hosts, Bryant, with Peter's back. Hey, Peter. Hey. That theme music gets and me so amped, man. Isn't it great? Ready to go. I know, yeah. Love it. Who, who, who's the artist? Valentine Wolf. Yep. Valentine Wolf. They nailed it. Kicking it. They also do, um, so in, in some of the more recent episodes, we've been trying putting uh, the stories section to music, and they did some mm-hmm. music. What is it? The Goldberg Variations, piano yeah. stuff. Yeah. Cami um, thought of that, and they they did that as well for us. They're super great, so check them out uh, if you like. Awesome. Uh, everyone, this is Mystery, and that, that's Cami. I, I didn't properly introduce the permanent guest. Um this is a show where every week we pick topics from a range of historical mythological events. And we like to give you a story and then we will talk about it, try and uh, unravel some of the facts or, or what have you about that. That's not what we're doing today. This is a two truths and a lie return in honor of Peter coming back. And also in honor of April Fool's Day, which will be tomorrow by the time this episode hits. So we've had, we've done this twice now, I believe, right? Just two times. Twice. Mm-hmm. Twice. So this is the third time. Really excited because they're always really fun. And so we'll just get right into it. Uh, basically what it is, is we're going to tell like three stories uh, or events or what have you. And one of them's a lie. And we'll have to each guess. So Peter's going to go first. He'll sell three stories. And then Cammy and I guess which one's the lie. And then whoever gets the most lies uh, un- unveiled <laughs> correctly will win something, I guess. Yes. So the, the, Peter... the Loki prize. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Something totally legit. Um, so <laughs> Peter, why don't you take us away? I will. So just to preface. So a few months ago, we did an episode on the signs of the Zodiac and it really got me kind of obsessed with uh, the the mythological stories behind the constellations. So hmm. that's going to be the theme uh, for, for my stories. I am not going to unveil my sources until after you guys guess, because I'm afraid that, that I might tip my hat or show my hand, I guess. Uh, okay. So I'm going to save, uh, save, save those for later. So I've got cool. a little introduction, and then we'll get into my three stories. So. Uh, you know, before the invention of writing, our ancestors would look up or look into the dancing flames of their fires, the lush landscapes that swirled around them, and the canvas of stars that were sprawled overhead. And they began to tell each other stories. They told stories of a great bird that was reborn in a raging fire, a tall mountain that was the body of a sleeping giant, and a brave hero who fell in battle and whose body was placed amongst the stars. Do you guys know the term? for naming constellations after after mythological figures oh no no. it's called uh, here's your fact for today it's called castasterism it's the transformation of a hero or mythological creature into a star constellation or or other celestial body the pleiades is a pretty well-known star cluster within the constellation of taurus that appears again and again in myth and folklore all over the all over the globe uh, the Pleiades is often called the Seven Sisters or Seven Birds and first appeared in written text in 2350 BC in China. They appear later in Western civilization in the writings of Hesiod, Homer, and the Old and New Testaments. I recently read an article that suggested 
suggested that the Seven Sisters story might be the oldest story in human history, first told in Africa near, nearly 100,000 years ago, where it spread through human migration to every corner of the earth. Now, I'm going to get a really well-known story out of the way. This is not one of the two truths or a lie, but this is where most people will know the Pleiades uh, from Greek mythology. So in Greek mythology, the Pleiades are the seven sisters, and they're the daughters of, of the Titan Atlas, and the fair maidens draw the attention of the insatiable hunter Orion. Atlas begs Zeus to protect his daughters from Orion's pursuits, and Zeus agrees, turning the seven maidens into doves and placing them amongst the stars. Atlas is thus forever separated from his beloved daughters, but at least he can still gaze upon them in the night sky as he holds up the weight of the world. A constellation prize, if you will. <laughs> never one <laughs> never one to resist another twist of the knife Zeus ensures the Pleiades will forever be chased by Orion as Zeus placed the hunter's body in the sky right next to the sisters after he fell in battle to Scorpio so that's a little background uh, this is the first story our first Pleiades story comes from Iceland and the prose Edda written by Snorri Storlson in the 13th century. Following a fierce battle with the giant Hrungnir, Thor, the god of thunder, was recovering from his wounds. A piece of whetstone had become lodged in his forehead, and Thor was plagued by a piercing headache. He summoned the wise woman Groa, wife of Arvandil, the valiant. Groa bent over the stone embedded, embedded in Thor's head and sang her spells until the stone began to loosen. Thor, in his relief, began telling Groa of the heroic deeds of her husband. He, he told her that one day Thor and Aravandil were returning from fighting in the frozen wastes of Jotunheim when they came to a swift, icy stream. The violent current would surely sweep Arvandil away, and only Thor's stout legs and belt of strength would be able to withstand the icy river. Thor would carry Arvandil in a basket strapped to his back. As Thor plunged into the freezing water, the waves crashed against his skin like an army of icy spears. Arvandil remained safe and warm inside the basket, except, except for one of his toes, which slipped through a hole in the basket. When Thor finally made it across the river, he discovered that Arvandil's toe had been frozen solid. The haughty god snapped off the frozen toe and flung it into the heavens. And to this day, Germanic and Scandinavian cultures call the Pleiades star cluster Arvandil's toe. So that is story number one. Story number two. The Pleiades lie within four degrees of the ecliptic, which means it can be seen in both the northern and southern hemispheres in the spring and autumn. When the Pleiades rises near dawn, it signals the beginning of the seafaring and farming seasons. For this reason, stories involving the Pleiades usually incorporate themes of fertility and purity, as our next story illustrates. The Kiowa tribe near Devil's Tower, Oklahoma, tell a story about seven maidens who were chased into the heavens by giant bears. Winter was approaching and the tribe had begun its migration south. They camped near a river where many bears were hunting for fish. One day, seven young girls were playing by the river and strayed further and further from their camp. The girls became surrounded by a group of hungry bears and scrambled up onto a boulder where the bear's grasping claws could not reach them. But the girls were trapped. How would they ever escape the bears? 
they prayed together to the great spirit to help them. And the great spirit heard their cries and caused the boulder to grow upwards with almost vertical sides, carrying the girls towards the sky and leaving the bears far behind. Undaunted, the bears tried to climb the great vertical column of rock, leaving a smooth surface gouged by their claws. Their clawing caused the rock to grow even taller, eventually pushing the seven girls into the stars. And this story also describes the formation of Devil's Tower. So if you've seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind, that big, scary rock, that's uh, that's the origin story for for how that, from the Kiwa tribe, about how that oh, rock came cool. to be. All right, this one might be my favorite. In Hungary, the Pleiades are known as the Fiestuk, meaning hen with chicks. Hungarians tell the story of a poor woman who put a curse on her seven sons and turned them into ravens. One day, the poor old woman went out into the woods to scrounge for food, bringing her youngest, purest son with her and leaving her seven coarse and lazy sons back at her crumbling hovel. The woman searched and hunted all day, but all she was able to bring back was a small pitcher of goat's milk. She warned her sons that the milk would have to last them several days, but when she woke in the morning, she found that her seven sons had drunk up all the milk. In her fury, the old woman cursed her seven sons, and she watched as their skin blackened into dark feathers. Their backs became twisted and contorted, and their screams became the harsh cackles of ravens. The poor woman was consumed with regret as her raven sons took wing and flew towards the setting sun. She searched and searched for them for many days, but could not find a trace of the raven boys. Finally, she received a premonition from a traveling witch that the ravens could only be found by her last remaining son. Dutifully, the young boy set out in search of his brothers. He came to the house of sun, but found only shadows. He came to the house of wind, and the wind whispered into his ear, A mill is grinding your brother's bodies, but they cannot die. Drop your own blood into the meal, and the spell will be broken, and you will all be reunited. The youngest brother searched until he found the mill where his brother's bodies were perpetually ground beneath heavy stones. Without hesitating, he threw himself under the great stone wheel, as his, as his blood mingled with that of his lost brothers, the spell was broken. The spirits of all eight brothers rose into the night sky, and they hang there still, like an unkindness of ravens in a thorny tree. Oh. That's so cool. If you, ever, That's a... ever wondered, if you ever wondered what a group of ravens, it's, they're an un, uh, unkindness, is what a group of ravens is called. <laughs> oh, yeah, murder of crows, unkindness of crows. I like that. Or, or ravens, yep. yeah. Um, those are great stories because they they really exemplify a lot of what we talk about here, where it's these different cultures seeing like you know trans thinking of the same thing, but it mm -hmm. just happens to kind of grow its own stories. So that's a really great approach to this. Uh, Cammy, do you do you know which one you're? I gonna... don't know. I feel like it's number two, and here's why. I it's it's the other story probably does exist, so it's like there's this other story yeah and then let's so we're adding to it the you know the explanation for the pleiades hmm. yeah i go with two okay. two okay all okay. can i'll i just put... say though that number one like it sounds like 
it's not true. But I, just the idea that the Norse would talk about toes and think that was appropriate is, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's like so them that I just have to give you credit. Yes. So, <laughs> well, I'll very, very, bot very bodily. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll, I'll go with one then. I, it was between okay. one and two for me, but I'll go with one. Um, just because I, I think that there's some uh, a lot of heavy truth in there, but I think Peter knows enough about it all to be able to spin it a little bit. So he's and if anything, you're just mm. doing what Snorri did in the 14th century, or anyway, he just you know just decided to make this mm -hmm. crap up all, at, at that time. So you, so you think I just repurposed the story? I, that, yeah, Maybe. that's what I'll go with. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm gonna go with. All right. Well, I, I will reveal the 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 lie by uh, talking a little bit about my my sources. So um, I have to credit the Hungarian folk metal band Dalriada and their song, The House of Sun and Wind, which uh, we have to, I have to put a link to uh, when we put this episode up because it's amazing. Yeah. They're a, they're a folk, folk metal band um, and they put this old Hung Hungarian folktale into uh, like a rocking song. And uh, that's where I got the, the kind of text for the Hungarian story, which is awesome. true. Um, the Kiowa story I got from, from Lucinda Riley .uk. Um, it is true. <laughs> uh. So Bryant, you are correct. Uh, awesome. the, the, the lie was, was story Thank number you. one. The actual, the story is, 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 is a true story. Like the, uh, our Vandal's toe, that is a real story and it's a real constellation, but it is not, uh, the Seven Sisters or the Pleiades. Uh, they do have a name for that, though. They call it Freya's Chicks. Um, but there oh. wasn't a very interesting story. There, <laughs> cool. there wasn't a very interesting story to go along with it, so I had to steal uh, Snorri's uh, story and attribute it to uh, that, that star cluster. So, Brian, that's you got cool. it. All right. That's what, I, yeah, and that's that's what I figured because it it sounded like it was it's it, again it's and it's kind of like what I do for for my like lies in this segment. Um, <laughs> you, you gotta base it in something and just kind of shift it a little bit. Otherwise, it's it's really. Am I the only one that just completely made it up? Probably. Yeah. I, I usually. <laughs> so I, I, I've I've completely made up mine in the past, but I don't know. There were so many good Pleiades stories, like, and I think your one of your last lies in one of the last the other episodes was like an indigenous American myth or um, I can't remember. So I almost like, I, that was one thing that made me think about maybe he's, you know, going with that again for number two, but I, I then the, the story thing, I was like, I don't think it's quite, I don't, I just, I don't think there was a direct explanation like that. Almost like Freya's chicks. Like, yeah, you, you know, they might be known as Freya's chicks, but I don't think there'd be a direct story like that. There wouldn't be mm -hmm. an ex a direct explanation story. I think in, in Norse mythology for something like that. So just concepts and and fun stories about loki messing with everybody so very mm -hmm. cool peter excellent work that was really great good job really, really good Thanks. all right cammy um are you ready to go next i am ready to go next do it <laughs> it began in 1915 when australian soldiers were returning from war and needed jobs the government quickly began clearing land to give these soldiers to build farms. The land they were using was encroaching on the wild wildlife in the area. And by the 1930s, these soldiers had a menacing threat to tend to the emu uprising. 
20,000 emu. The Australian military was sent to dispatch the birds. First, the military moved into formation behind a large horde of their foe, but the birds dispersed so quickly, only managing to hit a handful of the creatures. The second attempt fared not better. The soldiers were only able to fell 50 of the thousand emus they sighted. They even went so far as, deploy, as to deploy armored vehicles, but the enemy was too fast. After running the numbers, it took 10 bullets per kill. The military had to withdraw their efforts and declare defeat. <laughs> These are all war That's stories. Great. That's great. That's great. I'm not, I'm not doing war stories really this time, or mostly. So that's good. I'm glad you're taking it. <laughs> While scones have been around since at least the 1500s, it wasn't until 1908 that a royal decree finally decided the origin of the baked good. Scotland had always prized itself as the origin of the pastry, but the English, fueled by the bravado of early archaeology, found a reference to the food in a translation of the Aeneid by an English author, Gavin Douglas. The crown officially declared the biscuit as an English invention. The secretary for Scotland, John Sinclair, would not have the crown meddling in the affairs of his people, so he, he sent a diplomat to meet with King Edward VII on deciding the matter. The king refused to meet with him and sent him back to Scotland without any conversation of the beloved treat. Sinclair was furious, so he sent a letter of his intent to declare war on the crown if the issue was not resolved, and he sent proof of Gavin Douglas's heritage as a Scottish person. Edward VII, having no interest in starting a war with his own country, decided to let the matter pass and sent out an official royal decree that the scone hailed from Scotland. And then my last story. <laughs> That's, I love it. <laughs> in 1959, Eisenhower was doing everything he could to inundate the Soviet Union with American culture. Vice President Richard Nixon was sent as an ambassador of capitalism. But Nixon, being Nixon, got into an argument with Khrushchev. Is that how you say it? Khrushchev? Khrushchev. 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 Okay. Who was the leader of the Soviet Union. Well, the president of the beverage company, Pepsi, was there to intervene. He asked Khrushchev try the famous drink, and Russia was in love. A few years passed, and the Soviet Union wanted to bring Pepsi in to be enjoyed by their people. But Soviet currency wasn't accepted everywhere. So they traded vodka for a time. But when it was but when their deal with Pepsi was expiring, the vodka deal was off the table. Pepsi needed something worth more. So the Soviet Union traded Pepsi a fleet of military boats, including 17 submarines and a destroyer vessel. This exchange made the soda giant the sixth largest military in the world. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Kimmy. Oh man. They Peter, are also what are you feeling? Good. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Oh, they're 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 all really good. Um, I I I was a little skeptical of the the numbers in the emu story. It sounded a little uh, <laughs> a, a little over the top. Uh, so I'm gonna go with the emu story. Cammy, you were right. I am aware which uh, of the two truths here. I'm very familiar <laughs> with them. I have to say, though, and it's because I, I follow on Reddit a few historical meme. I mean, I, I follow plenty of historical reddits, subreddits, but a few meme ones. And um, the, these are much talked about. So I do know it is the, the, the scone or the scone story is the lie. <laughs> 
Oh. You're correct. <laughs> Thank you very much. That yeah, is a right. lot of emos, though. Yeah, okay. it was. It's a tremendous <laughs> event. And the, <laughs> I love like that they lost. It's emu. just my favorite that like they lost. <laughs> yeah, just like. <laughs> yeah, it's it's incredibly wild, and and the Pepsi thing too. Yeah, they managed this fleet basically. They were <laughs> an incredibly powerful soda pop corporation <laughs> for some time. But yeah, that's, they I still have all that stuff? origins. No, I think they sold it like very quickly. Yeah, probably <laughs> unethically too. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's cool. No, that's I. I didn't know the specific origins of that the Pepsi story too. Um, I remember just like the big headlines of it and stuff. So yeah, I good. used um, I I found the both the emu were in the Pepsi thing on TikTok. Um, but <laughs> I actually the I used uh, Business Insider how Pepsi became the sixth largest military in the world. And there was an article in Scientific American about the Great Emu War. Very cool, awesome. Well, that was really that was good awesome job for sure. Um, <laughs> and so, and Br Bryant is two for two. He has sniffed out both yeah. lies. Yeah, right. he's gonna win. All right. Well, we'll see. Yeah, I don't. I guess I. I think I inevitably. I think I do win, right? Like, yeah. There's no way. We we might as well just cut the episode. Yeah, it's done. <laughs> All right. Well, my stories are short and fun, so. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive right into it. I think I'm going to go in chronological order. I wasn't sure how I was going to say it. So I'll start off uh, about this man and a couple uh, exploits of his. Uh, so there was this Viking king, Harold Hardrada, which his name, Harold Sigurdsson was his name, um, but Hardrada was, was his title. It literally means like hard ruler. That's He was just that kind of guy. Uh, super awesome guy from the... Uh, early 11th century he was a norwegian uh norse warrior who uh was a christian though and he even served on the famous byzantine varangian guard which was a unique uh guard that the emperor had remember the byzantines are basically the romans the greek-speaking romans that that maintained for quite some time after the the fall of the western side and they were comprised of scandinavian norse anglo-saxons germanic basically everyone who wasn't like Mediterranean, essentially, from that area. Anyway, Harold served on there. He had a lot of great exploits. He eventually would become a, a king of Norway, um, as written by Snorri Sturluson in the Heimskringla uh, later when he was writing the history of the kings. And one of the most famous stories of Harold, though, other than his general exploits, was the time when he was campaigning in Italy uh, for the Byzantines, regaining some territory that was taken from them as Romans. And there were two stubborn uh, cities that they couldn't breach. And long sieges weren't always fun. So uh, when they were exploring the, the walls, the armaments, trying to find a, a weakness, Harold uh, noticed birds as they would forage. They'd come from these trees around the cities. So he ordered his men to grab the birds, to capture the birds, and tie uh, little pieces of tinder to them. He set them aflame, and lo and behold, when the birds realized that they had fire stuck to their bodies, they would run back to their homes, their nests, inside the city, inside the trees, causing great fires all inside of the city, which then forced the gates open, which his uh, Varangian warriors would run right in and absolutely destroy 
the opposition. In the same campaign season, he also uh, was besieging a city and to help speed it up, he faked his death. And uh, because these were all Christians, these weren't pagan Norse warriors. They asked, uh, they said, our our leader's dead, we're done. We would absolutely love it though, if he could be interred in your beautiful church inside. And of course they said, yes, we will absolutely do that. So they get this beautiful coffin where Harold's inside, Lo and behold, as the service begins, he pops out and they murder everybody and take the city. The old Trojan horse. Yeah. Trojan coffin. Yeah. Norse coffin. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, My next story takes place a few years later, about 50 years later, during the First Crusade. This is the Siege of Antioch. Now, this is one of the the First Crusade, like all Crusades, was a complete disaster in many retrospects. But um, the Siege of Antioch was important. So this was a coalition of forces, many European forces, many from France. Remember, this was in a united France. So it was all the little kingdoms and fiefdoms, the Normans, many others. But uh, the Norman prince, Bohemond, uh, essentially led it. And after they took the city um, with the help of some inside bribery from the guards to open up a section of the walls, they took in. They did take it over, but the the forces were so weak, they, they were able to kill everyone in the city. But the uh, reinforcements were already on their way. The, the Arab reinforcements were already on their way. So they had to prepare. Many of the crusaders were already deserting. So uh, Bohemond was trying to find a way with his uh, uh, his other generals, Raymond of Toulouse, especially, and the uh, a self-proclaimed uh, uh, priest, Peter Bartholomew, who this entire time had been having many visions sent by God of how to kind of keep everyone together, claimed that he had a dream that a holy relic was hidden inside the city. Now, uh, Bohemond didn't really believe him. He was spouting this kind of stuff the entire time. But Raymond of Toulouse, who was one of the other uh, guys in charge, believed him. So they started digging. And lo and behold, after digging for some time, they find a matted up piece of cloth, which Peter Bartholomew instantly recognizes as the cloth diaper of Christ. And with this diaper, they are able to rally the troops who were starving already. They had already eaten their horses and they were ready to abandon it. The the cloth diaper rallied them. Raymond of Toulouse held it and they were able to meet the forces, the uh, led by the reserve um, uh, Islamists. They came and they routed them and they were able to keep Antioch, which became an extremely important city for Norman hands for a couple years and was really important for later uh, pilgrimages and crusades. All right. Last story. This is a good one. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> last story is uh, I, I have titled this and Wikipedia has too. Um, the sword of state the the, um, the sword of the state of South Carolina. While the background of the sword is clear, it is a, a, a sword made around 1704 by the Ground Council of Lords and was instilled in the South Carolina Senate um, after the South Carolina's revolution in 1719. This sword was uh, purely for ceremonial purposes and would be laid when the Senate was in session. One day in 1941, before uh, the Senate went into session, the sword was gone. Um, of course, this is 1941. There's there's no fingerprint. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. So they, but they didn't think much of it. Uh, and 
they uh, thought it would get returned, but it wasn't until 1968 that they put a public statement that they agreed that if anyone would return the sword, there would be no questions asked. Um, following its theft, uh, a special cavalry saber was borrowed um, from the Charleston Museum, used until 1951, when the Earl of Halifax, learning that the blade was stolen, got a replacement, an authentic replacement, um, from the like the, in the same vein where it is there today, but the original sword of the state of South Carolina is still missing. If that's true, mm. let's go find it. Mystery hunters <laughs> finding the sword of our state. So, and yeah, you may not know, listeners. We are from we are we are all South Carolinians. We are here, so mm -hmm. uh, that was a fun story. So that's that's what I got for y'all. Wow, okay. he's feeling it. I don't know if um, <laughs> Monty Python was just super like correct in their history or whatever, but that, God, that second one is just. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like, I, I'm imagining this like banner with this like diaper. <laughs> and the fact that he instantly recognizes, <laughs> I don't yeah. think they used diapers back then. I'm going to go with two. Yeah. Okay. Peter, how you feel? Okay. Oh, man. And the first story was so amazing. Uh, it's, it's, jeez. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go for that one because it's, it's just so crazy. And, and, and it's like this Rube Goldberg machine of a, of a story. I love it. So I'm going to. Bryant I, loves I, those, I, though. I, I, <laughs> I will say, I live, I've lived in South Carolina for the entire time of, been a lot well not really but i mean i grew up here and i've never heard of the sword yeah ever. but i'm still going with two i'm so going with one Peter, but i got you go with harold hardrada's campaigns yeah 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 mm -hmm. all with right the, uh, with the with the firebombing birds yeah <laughs> so um cammy is correct the lie is uh in the siege of antioch story but um now, you know, Peter, the thing is, these are records in, in the, the source for Harold Hardrada stuff is in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, as well as a few other like relative things. So there's there's a chance this may have never happened. I would say the coffin oh, one sure. definitely seems believable. Um, the bird one, it's tough to think about. But Harold, I mean, he was a he was a. A Viking. I actually, I want to point out, I I got um, my first kind of. I, I'm aware, very aware of Harold Hardrada. He's been featured in Civilization, uh, Sid Meier's games before as a ruler of Norway. And the cool thing about him is he's like very much a, a Christian, but but he he's a lot like his Norman distant cousins, where they were able to they became like European Christian, but they really held on to their Viking pagan heritage, you know, by being these ruthless, crazy dudes. So um, I, I could absolutely see. I, that's why I, I'm glad I picked Harold because I knew that his those tales would be so like. It sounds believable, but is it so? Um, and the sort of state of the the sword in South Carolina that yeah. So this is really cool. Um, a year ago in February, right before the pandemic really hit, my uncle had done a surprise visit from England to uh, visit my mom for her her birthday, and it was really cool. Um, and I took him to the state house for a tour and we went into like the chamber 
and you could see this there's a sword there and there was a a, a gentleman um I, I i can't remember his title it wasn't usher or something like that but he's sort of as like a door min of some kind and maintains things but he knows mm -hmm. very well and they let us like go behind the do not cross this line and he explained this this he told me the story of the sword and i looked it up and yeah it's absolutely real it's an old sword from the english colonial period when there was just the carolinas um and mm -hmm. then just in 1941 it vanished and it has never been seen since there's a replacement sword there it's still put out there very ceremoniously um in a, a fun archaic way like a classical callback to uh you know three four hundred years ago but yes the sword the original sword is still out there somewhere we, we have to find it i'm guessing it's just some thank you cammy i'm guessing it's just some like <laughs> guy some just like farmer who was visiting and just accidentally took it home and it's just in his hat <laughs> and he has I, no I, idea no idea. yeah it might thought, be that looks like my sword is that my sword i'm gonna take that um <laughs> that's what i would guess right 1940s but uh and then the siege of antioch now, everybody I, had a sword in the 40s yeah absolutely that's okay. how you walked around um, and then the, the siege of Antioch. Now, this is uh, this was the one where it's it's kind of unfair because so much of this is true. And literally, in my my kind of quick version of the story, you just replace diaper with uh, a rusted spearhead, and you're you're good to go. This dude, Peter Bartholomew, was a crazy guy. He did have a dream that the holy lance that pierced Christ was in the city, even though the the so. The First Crusade kind of started the planning process. All the European leaders went to Constantinople and they all had to swear um, oaths to uh, the uh, Emperor uh, Alexius I that they would return all this land to him and stuff like that. They didn't. But um, they literally saw the Holy Lance. Like they had all the relics. Like every every major Christian relic was was pretty much in Byzantium at this period. So like many of these guys literally just saw it. I mean, whether it was it is to be said, but like if there was one, Alexios had it in his, his bathroom or something. So, uh, so much of this was true in, in how it was. And, but yeah, this Bartholomew dude, any, anytime the, 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 the campaign was going wrong, he had a dream, everything was good. And that's kind of how it worked, <laughs> but they did, they rallied behind this, this Holy Lance, P, um, uh, Raymond of Toulouse. He charged into battle with it. They fought off the, um, uh, Islamic relief forces and they were able to keep the city of Antioch for some time. Um, as a really important city and Bohemian, the Norman, he he was kind of set himself up in charge of it. But yeah, so I, I've, I, I just kind of implanted, I thought a cloth diaper would be, I wanted to make it like just a little more recognizable. So I imagine they'd have great. cloth diapers back then. Yeah. I, I don't know. You'd I figure they just like, color. yeah, you would like wrap the baby. I, didn't, I just don't know if they had like a separate. I don't know. Sure. I think they probably they did. A, yeah. They have to have something. They'd I call, yeah, they had, they had, I, did, I don't know what they the Aramaic word for diaper is, so <laughs> <laughs> I should have looked that up. Well, that was great, guys. Very good work um, to both of you. Thanks so much. This is always fun to do these stories. So let us know uh, how you did. If you beat me, if did you get three out of three? How did it, how'd you go? Let us know. So remember, you can watch this on YouTube and then, of course, listen to us anywhere. But please let us know what you think. Um, take a look at our link tree in the bottom in the description that'll link you to all of our stuff including uh, merchandise that you can get from threadless.com we've got a discord channel that you can use to kind of talk with us directly if you have any suggestions for myths or legends that you think we should talk about please let us know in fact we just had someone um, i made a mistake talking about vikings and uh, the early north american exploits we've decided to do a whole episode on this 
uh, as well as correct it. So stay tuned to hear that very soon. But um, again, thank you guys. Happy April Fool's Day. I am the April Fooler, <laughs> I guess, right? The champ April Fool champion. Well, anyway, um, is that's right. I low-keyed y'all today. <laughs> so I think that about covers it, guys. Anything else to add? I, I think that's it. Awesome. Well, uh, Cammy, thanks for coming. As always, Peter, it was great having you on. Hopefully we'll do like a traditional Podicus Magnus soon where we have wine and fun jaunts of discussions <laughs> coming very soon. Uh, but otherwise, we will see you all next time. Oh, oh. oh. Alex. I'm Michael. And I'm Nick. We are Entertain This, a thought-provoking podcast encapsulating all things entertainment. We release new episodes every Friday live on the Scene Snobs Network. And if you're more of an audio person, we got that too. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and Entertain This. Entertain This. Entertain This. And forget about it. Forget about it. it. <laughs> <laughs>